Hello, Priority Status listeners. This is Lauren Knudsen, EVP here at JPR, getting back into Travel Elevated. If you're a marketing nerd like me, then you're going to love this episode, which is one of two with the creative director at Infatuation and Sagat, Nick Billardello. Our conversation went as our get-togethers usually do, full of unexpected twists, lots of yes, that moments, and the result is decidedly different from any podcast that we have done before. But I hope you'll like the divergence. Take a listen. So we're here today with Nick Billardello from Zagat and Infatuation, the creative director over there. Hi, Nick. Hello. So in case anybody listening to Priority Status has been living in a hole, what is Infatuation? The Infatuation is a media outlet, entity, website, text-based service that ultimately is rooted in restaurant reviews and guides. Um, the citizen critic. The all things definitive authority on where you should be eating and what you should be doing in the world. That sounds very cocky as I say it out loud, but it's actually truly very helpful. At the core, really what we do is we try to help people with the pretty typical tasks that everyone, or the typical challenge that everyone faces weekly in that where should we go, right? And when, and for each scenario, what's the best kind of place that you need to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, whether that's a first date or dinner with your parents or brunch with your in-laws or a guy's night out or a girl's night out, or when you want a fun bar that still serves good food and dances and is open late on Tuesdays, right? It can get as granular as that or as broad as the best burgers in a city. And we give this information, we leverage this information through a lot of different spaces, mostly on our website and our app. We have a large newsletter subscriber base um, where we serve leading into our web content, but also special content that lives just in newsletter format. We have a very large following on Instagram. We have 22 different Instagram accounts, including cities. Actually, there's probably more than that at this point now. Cities all over the country and the world, and also a ton of food handles. We have at burger, pasta, ice cream, whiskey. Just the important ones, I think. All the good ones, right? And we have a very large Instagram audience where we do a ton of content and driving people to more reviews and restaurant information, but we also do fun stuff on Instagram stories and video content there. And then we also have a human-powered subscription text recommendation service. Which I think is possibly the most brilliant thing of it all. So you can sign up for a thing called TextRex. And at any given time, a real human will respond to you and give you restaurant recommendations for whatever you need. It is available in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. But honestly, we can answer any question pretty much about anywhere in the world if you need it. And I think one of the things that is really interesting about it, and I've said it like a couple times already now, but it is human powered. It is a real person talking to you. And how we do that is very complicated and an interesting process, but we employ a lot of people in a lot of places to man it and operate it. But it's an awesome service, so I would highly recommend signing up for it. It's very, very cool. Actually, a new thing we also have just launched is a membership service, only here in New York. It is a paid submodel to become a friend of the infatuation. And what that gets you ultimately is this text rec service at a higher level, faster response times, more information, more proactive messaging and information around restaurants. And then special experience at our big food festival, EatsCon. Actually, 
I left that out. I'll go back and explain what each kind of is in a minute. And then first dibs on all of the events we do. So last year we did 85 events in the US and London throughout the calendar year. 45 of those were here in New York. The majority of these events sell out in minutes and actually sell out is probably the wrong term. They fill up in minutes because most of them are free events. Becoming a member allows you first access and you get to RSVP or buy a ticket or whatever the action is for these events before the mass audience gets to. In that portion of our business, we do a ton of events from dinners to large scale events. Um, some of them are partner based with giveaways or free things or products. Every one of them has incredible amounts of delicious food that usually never runs out. That's why I'm very overweight. <laughs> But we also do two times a year, once in New York, once in Los Angeles, a massive food festival called EatsCon. We say discover a different kind of food festival. It's not your average small portions, big ticket price for all you can eat where you're eating out of little Dixie cups. This is the closest thing you're going to get to a music festival like a Coachella or a Bonnaroo, but, but where food is the headliners and not music. Um, we bring in tons of restaurants from either from New York or Los Angeles and all over the world. We have great talent and speakers and performers. Portions are large. The day is fun. There's a ton of stuff to do. There's a lot of photo experiences and cool activations and interesting giveaways from brands. We put a lot of time and energy and effort into building an event that feels like a place that you don't want to leave. So it's an incredible experience. But between events, online media, apps, and texting services, that is how you can interact with our company as a whole and figure out exactly where and what and when you should be eating. So many things. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> so many things. So I can do all the fun things at your events. I can at any moment have any need met with Textrex or with your guides or just be really excited following along on social media and, and putting together my hit list. Okay. So last year you, you guys acquired Zagat. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a over 40-year-old brand that you can't pay for that kind of visibility across the world. It's pretty much in the window of every single restaurant. And it was owned by Google. They had utilized it and leveraged it for many years to really build up their Google reviews platform and ultimately felt like it was a competitor in-house and felt like it would be much better suited in the hands of another company to reinvent it. We actively pursued it, and Tim and Nina Zagat, the founders, specifically said, we feel like the infatuation is the home that Zagat should live in. We were obviously honored and flattered, and the crazy part is Tim and Nina's story and history is very similar to our founders, Chris Stang and Andrew Steinthal's story, and was rooted in just the sense of trying to help people figure out where they should go. And they were very, very conscious about being relatable and understanding what it's like for people and people that are passionate about restaurants, all the way down to the point of the shape and the size of the book was so that you could fit it in your back pocket. They really thought about those kind of things and how they left margins with space to write notes. And it's a lot of what we do and how we think about things. So of course, the brand in of itself is known everywhere in the world. And I think for us, the true value and what we really pitched to, to Google and to Tim and Nina where we wanted to go with this is the infatuation brand truly is an editorial perspective. It is writers. They are critics. We have a distinct point of view and a distinct voice. And really, 
there's not a lot of competitors in that space, but our real competition that the average person that's needing recommendations or information about restaurants is user-generated platforms, TripAdvisor and Yelp. And we felt like Zagat, that was the original one of those that in really invented user-generated content. For those who don't know, Zagat was always survey-based. It was paper surveys. They'd send out thousands and thousands of surveys all around the world and aggregate all that information into a book. And we thought, well, if we are going to get into the user-generated content space and get in the sandbox with the big boys, why not leverage the brand that invented it? So our perspective and what we've been working on really vigorously is creating a new Zagat platform that will be a user-generated space for people to review and write and give their perspective around restaurant and dining all over the world. But our big differentiator in our perspective is that we want it to only be a space where it's for people that are really passionate about dining. So we will be vetting users. And unlike a TripAdvisor or like a Yelp, where anyone can write anything they want, which ultimately sort of leads you to the law of averages where everything kind of falls in the middle. This is a space where we want people who really care about giving information to other people to help them. So that's our hope and that's our plan for Zagat and that will be coming mid next year. We've been working really, really hard on it and we're excited to start putting it out into the world next year. It's really exciting. And what I love is there's this moment of renewed enthusiasm for these type of established brands. You know, the new life that you're breathing into Zagat is incredible. And, you know, last year we saw Michelin really up the ante on their mm-hmm. brand and, and try to breathe some new enthusiasm into that by rolling out a California guy, which I know the California chefs that I know were just so excited about. And we saw a group of relay chefs gather to have a, a Michelin inspired dinner uh, where a number of them had been rated for the first time because that was the first time they were able to be rated. For sure. Um, and so what does that say about where we're at in society with food and this passion and pardon the pun, hunger for more information? For sure. I think it's amazing. You know, it's, um, I think there's always been a really intensified passion around culinary as an art form. And whether that was a small group or a niche or however you want to have a perspective, it's mattered for a really long time. But I think what's really interesting and exciting about right now is now it's for all ages, right? And the younger generation, the younger audience has now perceived food and dining and culinary art forms at all levels as a really exciting, awesome medium to get in and get around and be passionate about and be excited about. And you've seen the celebrity chef, the range of who falls into that now has just completely widened from where it may have been a strict club for people that only fit one demographic or type or experience. Now the space for food creation to be celebrated can be on a very large scale all the way down to the mamafukus of the world and places that have graffiti on the walls and chefs that wear sneakers in the kitchen. And 
it's an amazing time. So it's really awesome, not only for the chefs and the restaurants and the restaurateurs and the people making it and serving it and PR companies that are pushing out the messaging and, and telling the out. stories behind it, but it's also awesome for the audience and the eaters of the world. I mean this with all due respect, but we, we don't really believe in the term foodie. Like we don't really say that. And I think it's because everyone eats. You have to stay alive to eat. And it's for everyone. And sure, there might be some people that are like really study who's a chef where or what they're serving or how it's being served or could be as simple as are passionate about cheeseburgers and want to eat every single one in the city they live in. But to a degree now, I think there's no separation. Everyone has the opportunity to experience good restaurants and good food and make content out of it and check things out and show people where they're going and where they've been and what they've eaten, whether it's traveling or in their own town. And it's just an exciting time for this whole entire industry because it's something that everyone cares about. It's part of cultural zeitgeist right now. You know, I, I recently heard Adam Rappaport and Julia Moskin from Bon Appetit talking about how they curated their top 100 list. Mm -hmm. A lot of eating, which sound both delightful and detestable <laughs> all in the same breath. But what I was struck about with their list and when they were speaking about it was it obviously has Miami and New York and Chicago and LA and the places you would expect. But when you actually look at the list, there's some ran seemingly random locations. Like there's two restaurants in St. Louis and having yeah. dined in St. Louis, a few times because one of my good friends lives there. The food scene is really rad. For and sure. there's this um, second tier, third tier market that's really going after food because to your point, everyone needs to eat, but people also really want to eat fun and interesting food. But For sure. Julia kept coming back to and reiterating in this interview that I saw about how the point of the list is not just to have the place that's got the sizzle and the sparkle. Many of them do on the list, as you might expect, and you know some of them on the list are being are contenders for Michelin stars this year when their cities get mm -hmm. rated again and whatnot. But there was this one place she talked about that the eggs, the scrambled eggs, were so damn good. She had to keep <laughs> yeah. coming back, and I get that. Like that speaks to me. It's the sure. same. It's the reason that your local diner is your local diner, and you go there three, four, five times a week or a month or whatever. Food doesn't have to be this sort of crazy molecular gastronomy to make lists. And that's really what you're getting at with what you are serving up to, I'm full of the food puns today, what you're serving <laughs> up to your audiences. No, for sure. And I think that's that's a really good point in that like, that's the challenges with formulating these types of lists or, or having to do this, this type of editorial work is situational. And that's really what our company does. It's a little bit different and why we think audiences care about what we create because ultimately we, we very rarely do here are the best. These are the best things. It's usually the best blank of blank for blank, right? It's these are the best breakfast spots in this area when you want to be able to go in your gym clothes, right? Because who's to say that, yeah, this white tablecloth French restaurant in a certain part of the city that has all the accolades or everyone talking about it or is at a certain price point is better than the diner that's on your block that every time you go in there, you have a certain feeling that can't be replicated anywhere else in the world. Now, who's to define truly what's better? 
sure, there's a barometer, there's a, a standard that you have to create, but that's why we try to situationally define what a place is great for. And we have, you know, a specific term we use, which is perfect for, right? This place is perfect for X, perfect for Y. It's why we, we actually did, we just put out, uh, you know, the best burgers in the city list. And that was like really challenging for us and really hard to say. And no one is happy with that after. No one, you know? Everyone is like, how can you leave this place off? How dare you put Shake Shack on that? It's like, but honestly, why should Shake Shack be demeaned for just having more outlets and being in more places? Why is that bad? Accessibility is a good thing in some instances. Maybe it's not in others, you know? So it's really hard to define what makes a place good if you're not putting some kind of parameter around it. And I think that's what we help for people to solve is that's just a relatable sense. Because, yeah, 100 best list is, is amazing. And that's an awesome thing to see. And that's an accolade for any restaurateur or chef to be on. For a user, it's, it's entertaining to read. But like you said, it's, they're all over the place. So am I going to put travel to those hundred places and check them all out? Probably not. But a thing I can use right this afternoon is the hundred best places in my neighborhood. You know, that's the problem. We're just trying to do something a little bit different and approach it in a little bit different way that just feels much more relatable. When your events are a way that you are approaching it differently and it is a standout and point of differentiation from many of your food competitors, if you could qualify them. I know, you know, we actually are seeing that the New York Times just launched its first food festival where basically anyone interested in culinary can come and listen to people like Frank Bruni talking about the life of a food critic or Danny Meyer talking about building a hospitality empire. But what the fundamental difference, and I'm sure you have many thoughts on what those differences are, but mm -hmm. you know, these are a traditional food critic and a traditional hospitality person who both bring so much value. And candidly, I would be eager to go and sit with and hear more from. But what you're saying is you are curating lists from what the masses are giving back, the citizen critics of the world. And, and you're creating your events around that model versus what lauded people in their industries are saying. Sure. And I think it's all a positive thing. Like the more information out there, the more opportunity to hear different people at different levels speak about what they do is amazing. You know, there should be, I said this to you earlier, is that there should be more food festivals. There should be one every weekend. There should be one every day. Why not? If there's an opportunity for food not to go to waste, but for people to be able to experience different restaurants all in one spot, um, and hear people talk about food or things they're passionate about. Like, it's only a positive thing. Ultimately, the New York Times Food Festival is on the same weekend as ours. But, you know, I think we should be entering a world eventually where there should be multiple food festivals in every city on, on every weekend. Um, and it's only a good thing. You pointed out that a very large, well-known restaurateur or classically trained chef or a celebrated food critic might not be the headliner at our type of festival. Comparative sake, the headline speaker at ours is Questlove from The Roots and Dwayne Wade from NBA fame. Both guys are incredibly passionate about food. Dwayne Wade is launching his own uh, vineyard and line of wine called Wade Cellars. Questlove has a recipe book coming out. It's more 
a relatable perspective of like, these guys are known for something else. I might be a lawyer. I might be a doctor, but I love to cook at home. I love to go out to restaurants. Like it's something that you can totally understand. Like, wow, that's so cool. This guy is at the top of his profession and something else, but also is really passionate about this thing, about food, about eating out, about posting Instagrams, about cheeseburgers. Like it's, again, it's that perspective of, Thinking more about culture holistically is how we like to do things. And I think, again, not to plug our food festival even more, but, you know, we're bringing in Hattie B's hot chicken from Nashville. And that's just like, who in New York doesn't want to be able to go eat that hot chicken in so Queens? so good. That you know? place is amazing. So, and we try to get restaurants to try and do things that they don't normally do because like, what better place than this opportunity to like check out something new? I'm here. I'm only going to be here for a couple hours. Like this is awesome. Cause if you started to see that Hattie B's was starting to advertise a hot chicken sandwich and it's only in Nashville, like that's soul crushing. I can't eat that, but guess what? It's happening in Queens on one day and we're bringing it to you because like, that's just some cool, interesting thing. And it's not about the analyzation of how it's being prepared. It's being served in a restaurant. It's more just like, yo, come eat this thing, you know, cause it's awesome. So shedding a little light on the differences as to how there can be multiple food festivals and tons of different brands doing different things in food and culinary and social, however you want to serve it to people. But it's only a good thing to give people different perspectives. You had mentioned Bon Appetit and they did like a really interesting multi-day experience where they had their hosts speaking and giving seminars. And that's just like, again, a whole other thing about cooking and cooking at home. And it's like, it's all in the same world, but it's most certainly not competitors, right? It's only a good thing for the culture and for people and how they like to do things and experience and relating to everyone in all different formats. Infatuation has its list of 100 things to eat before you die. Mm -hmm. What are two on Nick's personal list? Oh, easy answer. In Seattle, there is a sandwich shop called Un Bien. The story behind it is like amazing, but actually has nothing to do with why you should eat it. It is a roast pork sandwich. It was one of the most disgusting moments of my life because I had been on a content like tour, basically. I was just shooting content in all different cities. And I had already eaten like four times that day. And we were going just to shoot it. And as they were cooking it, I was like, oh my God, I have to eat this thing. And I was already like disgustingly full and I unwrap it and I'm filming it. We're shooting all different types of content around it. And I take one bite and then like I blacked out and all of a sudden it was completely gone. And it was a religious experience <laughs> in eating this roast pork sandwich. Um, I wasn't sure where that was going. It did, <laughs> the story in my mind did not end with you just blacking out and eating it all. But <laughs> No, it was, but honestly, it's like one of those things where everyone's had that experience where you take one bite of something and then all of a sudden you just inhale it because you're like, oh my God, this is so good. And I unfortunately had done it in a state of where I was already grossly full, but literally roast pork, these caramelized onions has this like, homemade spicy like chive mayo they put on it. It's it's literally one of the most insane, amazing sandwiches I've ever eaten. And quickly, the story behind it is that the owner of the shop, he had a restaurant space and he lost his lease and another company came in and bought the restaurant. And unfortunately, he couldn't continue running that spot. The, the name of the restaurant was attached to the lease. So he had to go set up shop at a new place, open a new thing. But 
he was able to keep his recipes. So the original restaurant, oh, I'm blanking. I can't even remember the name of it. I'm sure some follower or something will tell you what the actual name of the original restaurant was. But they keep operating and claiming that it's the same sandwiches. And he's down the block not advertising, not doing anything, just coming to work every day and making these sandwiches. But the people have slowly migrated and found out. And now mile long lines at Umbien during the day. And the secret move is to go late at night because it's sort of just like a little sandwich shop on the side of the road. That's number one, definitely, absolutely a thing you need to eat before you die. In Chai Mai, Thailand, there is, a, she was actually on Parts Unknown. She's referred to as the cowboy hat lady. She is part of this like open market that's only open at night. It's all like different stands. She's called the cowboy hat lady because she wears a cowboy hat every seven days a week from, I believe it's like 9 p.m. to one o'clock in the morning and has this huge cauldron that she's just cooking up roast pork. And it's like amazing to watch her work. She's like a huge machete and like a giant ladle and is like, it's part art, part science and she's just flying at a thousand miles an hour. And you get this beautiful tray of rice and beans and roast pork. And it's like in American dollars, like a dollar and 35 cents or something or a dollar 50. And Amazing. it's one of the most incredible meals. And again, that whole list is of a different nature. It is the kind of like hidden gems, like a lot of street food is on it. A lot of things that are based around like the experience of going and eating it because of the place you're in. Of course, there's probably like singular dishes at certain restaurants that have beautiful views and the top of high rise buildings or something. But this is all much more about the adventure of eating. And that's why we kind of position it as the hundred things you should eat before you die because the experience is so amazing and so much fun. Thanks for leaving us salivating and... <laughs> actively looking for flights to Seattle. Yeah, Umbian, <laughs> it's incredible. Thanks for coming today. Of course. I'm pretty sure we could have sat for hours more discussing the parallels between good hospitality and what the team at Infatuation Zagat's doing every day. But I'm curious to know what you think about this. Do you have insights on how the hospitality and travel industries could deploy next level marketing? Please slide into my DMs at Lauren C. Knudsen with feedback. And maybe we could even get Nick to give us a hot take on the topic. Until next time, this is Lauren Nitsen with JPR. Always travel elevated.